Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like a wind you don't feel On your skin you can't see it the sky if I tell you something baby do you promise not to cry at first it came some awful news but news that was needed the children seemed to understand before I could believe it Jesse Ruddock is a talented writer photographer and musician currently based in Brooklyn, New York. Originally from Guelph, Ontario, Ruddock graduated from Harvard cum laude after attending the university on an ice hockey scholarship. She was a hotshot goalie who got into hip-hop and underground rock thanks to Jim Guthrie and pals like Noah 23 and Livestock. She's made her own music under monikers like Coco Bonaparte and Coco Blue, and her writing and photography has appeared in The New Yorker, Bomb Magazine, and Vice. In February 2017, Coach House Books published her debut novel. It's called Shot Blue and has received raves from the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, and Kirkus Reviews, among others. Jesse and I caught up at the CFRU studios recently when she was home in Guelph, and she surprised me with stories about her past life as a hockey goalie, attending Harvard, her writing influences, the power of her peers in Guelph, her remarkably talented family, and where her novel, Shot Blue, may have come from. Sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, this is Jesse Ruddick in conversation on the 316th episode of Creative Control with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Jesse. How's it going? Hi, Vish. Um, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. Of course. It's nice to have you here. We're at the CFRU studios, and uh, I don't know if you are very familiar with this place. Did you come up here a lot when you lived in Guelph? Yeah, mostly when I was a young teenager. So I was in the, the punk scene, and I came to a lot of shows in the basement of this building, and then would come and hang up, hang out up here when people had all kinds of shows. And... Uh, but I never had one of my own, but I loitered here a lot. Why didn't you? Did you not want to have a, your own show? I was too busy playing hockey. Oh, right. <laughs> you played hockey. Yeah. 
as a kid you like is that something you did a lot of yeah oh Wait, do you not know that I vaguely know it. I mean, I know that you were you did an interview with someone else here, and yeah. you talked about being you were a goalie. I was a goalie, yeah. But I didn't know how serious that was because the person you were talking to, I actually don't know her seriousness either. I got mm-hmm. the impression it was like rec hockey. You know, I just play. No, you, but you were a serious hockey player. Yeah, it was my my whole life and my first career until I was about twenty three. So, my dad, who's um, who doesn't obey categories at all signed me up for boys hockey because uh-huh. there wasn't a girls league at that time right in guelph right and then i was the only girl in paper paperweight league paperweight yeah that's like when you're four or five. Oh. and then i won the mvp that year because there was a shootout and i poke checked everyone coming down in the shootout and then that at five years old yeah. you had that killer instinct yes amazing <laughs> that's great well i used to go to all the platers games that was the name the storm the yeah the storm game. why were they called the platers by the way i think that's like a an industry i don't know what plating is but it's some sort of huh. metal job or and that's whatever. a thing that happened a lot in guelph i think it must have but i don't really know oh, okay okay uh, um Anyway, that started, then I played single A and then triple A boys, and I played high school uh, boys for GC, which was some of my favorite hockey. Did you go to GC? No, I didn't I didn't live in Guelph. Okay. I, I grew up in Cambridge. I okay. moved here for university. All right. So I'm not a Guelph person. Did you think I was a Guelph person? Um, yes, I, <laughs> I, I imagine that halo around your head. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I would come here for shows yeah. every once in a while as a teenager, mm. so I was familiar with it, but then I applied, you know, you apply to a bunch of universities when you're yeah. in high school or whatever, and then I, I didn't have any romantic notion coming here, although I will say, I, that can't be entirely true. I had some very pivotal musical moments, like a house show that with a band from Discord Records, Blue Tip played, and and I also, uh, I saw Sloan for the first time in Guelph, which was a big deal for me. So I shouldn't say that it wasn't romantic on some level. Um, Guelph did mean something to me, but, um, and yeah, actually one of the first out-of-town shows I played when I was in a band was in Guelph at the Albion. So yeah, I I shouldn't, yeah, I guess it was bound to happen. We were meant to be in the city and (laughs) I. But uh, anyway, sorry, so you played hockey seriously. Yeah, I played triple-A boys, which is very tough yeah. and, and great, and it was tons of fun, which meant I was recruited by U.S. college teams, women's teams. Yeah. And when I was 15, I got a bunch of letters, which was sort of early, from all the colleges saying, please play for us. Like um, in the ma- On the men's teams? Women, women's th- those teams. Were women. They had women's teams. Yeah. yeah, okay. Their scouts loved to find you know girls playing on boys' teams. And, oh. Yeah. Um, so then I went a couple years later on college visits, and then I went to Harvard. I chose that team because they had a lot of great Canadian hockey players on their team. Right. And I played goal for them for three years. And so you, you went to Harvard yeah. and played hockey. Yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. And you went to class. I only and, cared about hockey. Did but you, I, you went to classes and stuff. You were a student at I Harvard. I was a student. At Harvard. Yeah. That's, that is, and you're like, you didn't know this? I should know. I did vaguely know about these things, but I've never, it's like a rumor. Mm-hmm. You hear these things like that Jesse Reddick went to Harvard and you're like, that can't be true. It was. What is she in Goodwill Hunting? Like, that's what I <laughs> I wondered. But no, you yeah. you you played for. What was that like playing going? What was it like going to school in Harvard? Yeah. First sh- of all, because it's like a mythical thing. Harvard, right. Yale, you know these Ivy League American schools. Yeah. Well, first of all, I should say that my Guelph punk friends um, had an intervention before I went because they didn't believe in you know higher education of in the, the systematic mm-hmm, kind. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went out to dinner with a bunch of them, and they all tried to convince me not to go, which I love them for so much. Um, <laughs> and I feel like Guelph kept me really true throughout all of that because 
It's going to Harvard was totally disorienting because all the kids came from different backgrounds and were really trained to be there. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was trained to stop pucks and also just love my my life and my family. But there's a lot of ambition there that was totally foreign to me. Right. And then I didn't thrive in at first. And I, I learned how to rule and I made some friends who, you know, you need friends to protect you in an environment like that yeah, where sure. people are so competitive. But it took some time. And um, I tested, I was thinking about this uh, not long ago, but going to school in Guelph didn't prepare me for the school there. So I tested very low. They they put you through standardized testing at Harvard. Oh. And I arrived as like a top student, but I was like at the bottom of the barrel and had to climb my way back up. So it was very tough. And in the meantime, playing hockey traveling around america yeah do they make special allowances for you because you're like a jock you know like in terms of academic stuff i kind of happily know oh yeah so you you sputtered a little bit academically is that what you're saying no i just um even if i hadn't been playing ice hockey i was not prepared academically to be there and i had to catch up so were you able to catch up i did after two after two years and then i was so I'm very proud of that, but I also um, I realize that some kids are just trained from the day they're born to be there, and I'm so glad I wasn't. So did but you? I meant, did you graduate? I, I graduated. Yeah. You you have a degree from Harvard. Cum laude. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it's funny. And you went for hockey. Mm-hmm. That's that's an odd trajectory. Yeah. And did you? But okay, so you know there was a uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name, but there was an NHL player. Uh, was her name Manol Rayom? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was a, a female goaltender in the NHL, right? Briefly. She Briefly. played a couple of games with the Tampa Bay Lightning. And this was revolutionary and newsworthy. Was she someone that you... She, I had a poster of her in my right. room. Yeah. So she was she was definitely a hero. Yeah. Heroine. Yeah. So was it playing with men? I I don't know where to go with this. Like I usually <laughs> I ask someone a question and it's then we cool. just go in all sorts of directions. Yeah. And uh, I want to find out the punk bands you saw in Guelph, so don't let me forget that, the ones in the basement here at the University Center. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is just, I'm overwhelmed by all of this information, so let me try to unpack as much as I can. Playing with men as a woman, what was that like? Well, in Guelph, my teammates were so wonderful to me. I never got picked on. The only tough thing was I was always changing in the janitor's room or in the bathroom without a chair and, you know before and after and you're all sweaty that kind of thing i miss some of the locker room hang which is like part of the best the best part of hockey maybe so um but they were super kind no parents it was only once i was like 14 that i think the parents started thinking um maybe i was 16 when they sort of voted me off like as a girl but before that what really yeah it was for a triple a tryout and they brought me in and they said you know, you're you're good enough, but at this point, you should probably go to Toronto and play women's hockey because it's kind of tense. I was cute. I was like 15, and all the, the boys, they were very serious hockey players and stuff like that. So I could be seen as a, a distraction or whatever. You were cute. Yeah, I think you so. Are, you, you are cute. I don't want to <laughs> make you uncomfortable, but you, you the parents thought that you would be a distraction to the other kids. That's the coaches and the parents, yeah, but they... Out of, it wasn't too bad, huh. though, because they spoke to me very respectfully. And I remember that meeting well because it was devastating on the one hand, but they also said, we believe in you, that you know you yeah. could try to make the women's national team and everything, but you have to move on from boys' hockey now. Wow. And 
I was devastated, but I also like felt very confident as an ice hockey player at that point. So I was like, okay. And then Nick, my father, had to drive me to Toronto like four or five times a week, three or five, um, to play with the women there. Right. And how was that? Uh, wonderful. There yeah. were a bunch of Olympians. I got to train with some Olympians and play with girls who had come from all over Ontario. Did you? Yeah. Did you play with people we would know, like famous people? Sort yeah. Of? Lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> They're so good. I, I, um, the first uh, wave of women Olympians, um, Canadians and Americans, I played with or against them all at some point. Wow, okay. Yeah. So like, uh, who am I, like Cassie Campbell? Yeah. Or, yeah she, were... she was a senior arrow and I was a junior arrow. Okay. So, and her mother was my coach. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Eunice Campbell. And um, in college, there were eight Olympians on my team including Jennifer Botterill, who's one of Canada's greatest players right. ever. And Angela Ruggiero, who's the best defenseman who ever lived. She's a U.S. player, was my roommate in college. Oh, at Harvard. Yeah, oh, okay. So. Okay, so you play with the best. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you were cute. Were you a good... Oh, my God. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you were, were you a great goaltender? Were you, like, could you hang in there? I was. You and were good, yeah. I was great. I was the starting goalie for Harvard. But I should say, I got injured and slowed down. Oh, so, okay. Um, what was the injury? First, I got blew up my ACL. Then I oh. broke my hip. Playing you in a game? Yeah. Oh. Well, the hip in, in practice. But, oh, no. So it meant that then my lateral movement, which is, as a goalie is really important, was yeah. compromised. Oh. And I always knew I was like, I'm not as fast anymore, you know? So. How long were you in rehab for the hip? Like, how long did it take to recover? It took 10 years after... 10 years? Yeah, because people say it's like one year, but the truth, I could only walk for like four or five miles without getting tired. Oh. And then, um, so now I can hike mountains and stuff like that. Wow, that must have that's been heartbreaking. A, that sounds like a slow recovery, but I like to emphasize the length because sometimes people say six months or a year yeah. for an injury, but in truth... Like for all the muscles and the balance to return, it's like a long time before you're powerful again. But you didn't take ten years to go and play hockey again. You, I took. I had a hiatus when my hip was broken. Yeah. I came back for one year. Um, uh, after a year, like a year later. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. you started playing again, and then you realized you you weren't the same. I'm not the same. No, but even after my ACL blew out, I didn't have the jump. I think I was. Um, one of the fastest goalies before that. And then after, I just knew it. You couldn't tell anyone either, you know. But I knew that I was slower. And No one no one pointed this out to you. You just knew. I knew. But I also could tell the in, that I didn't have this exact same confidence, which is really important mm. for a goalie. But I did start for Harvard for three years. And, you know, we, play, we made two Frozen Fours. That's like the final four? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I actually <laughs> don't know much about the coll coll collegiate hockey, like college yeah. hockey. I don't know much about it. I don't follow it. Pretty serious business. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. And and then my last game ever was double overtime and losing to Minnesota at the world at the national championships. Yeah. In Minnesota. That's your your final game. My final game. Hmm. So you off the post and in. Oh. That's a drag. Yeah. That's like a that's a that's a, a hair like a hair away from no goal. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you follow hockey still? Yeah. Like, do you follow the NHL or college um, hockey? I've been following just the last couple of months. Though it was the Women's World Championship, yeah. so I was paying attention to that a right. lot. But when I was living in New York the last few years, I had so many friends obsessed with basketball and stuff like that that I kind of fell off on on following hockey. But I'm moving to Montreal, and I plan on. 
Oh, you're moving to Montreal. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was gonna. Okay, so we unpacked some things, but uh, let's let's keep going. I, I there's a lot here. I, I but I want to ask you about the fact that I tried to pin you down for this interview a few times. Yeah. Because I know you as being uh, someone who has lived in Guelph, and I thought this would be relatively simple. But the one time I I contacted you, well, I knew that I knew you'd lived you were living in Brooklyn. But then I think when we were corresponding, you were in Spain. You've yeah. been kind of all over the place. That's true. So um, where are you living? You're living in Brooklyn. Right now, no, I don't oh. live anywhere. <laughs> you don't live anywhere right no. now? But you were, how long were you in Spain? Um, for two months. Oh, two months, we, okay. Because my partner, Georgia, she grew up in Spain. Right. And we're going to get married, so I... Um, Congratulations. Very soon. And so I wanted to see where she grew up. Because I could also tell that her heart, she likes, you know, when she's speaking Spanish, she's perhaps, you know, more alive and all these things. And I've never, you know, done that with her. So we had to go and it was really nice there. Do you have some Spanish? Oh, um, no, just very basic. Very basic. (laughs) My son and I uh, downloaded an app and we were trying to learn Spanish together over Christmas because we were bored. That's lovely. Yeah, we kind of, it fell off. Which Uh, app? Uh, it's called Duolingo. Yeah, I'm on that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. The Spanish, it's like the they don't have the Spanish accent on on that. It's mostly oh. sort of like, yeah, you know, like it's the, a robot. Yeah, it's like a robot automated voice, and yeah. it can't get all the accents. So no one knew what I was saying because if you don't have the little like the air Inflection, moving yeah. in the right way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're trying to get some Spanish going. Yeah. Okay, so you were just in Spain visiting, so that's what it was. Yeah. And uh, but you've been living in New York. Yeah. Um, over the last five years, back and forth from Guelph to New York, and I, I have a house in Guelph, and I consider it home. But oh, I you own this, a house here? Yeah. Oh, okay. And I always, um, though, I would have all these jobs I was doing in New York, so I had an apartment there and did a lot of work there and had adventures. What kind of jobs? Um, research or editing and writing. But I ended up being an editor at one publishing house and then being an assistant editor to a bunch of other ones. That was just to make money to be there, really. Right. Okay. And so I, at your book launch for Shot Blue uh, in Guelph recently at, at during Kazoo Fest, uh, you made a, a very heartfelt speech about how you missed Guelph and how much Guelph meant to you. That's true. And I kept thinking, you know, you were living in Brooklyn, New York, you know, uh, New York City, one of the most exciting places in the world. You would, I would think, you'd have enough to do. You'd have enough to think about. You'd have enough action. That's the thing. That you wouldn't be homesick. You too would be much action. Too much? Yeah. It was overwhelming. At some point, I was going out, say, every night of the week and having adventures and meeting heroes, dining with them, um, going to three art galleries, running into somebody else, going to an underground um bar seeing somebody play music two feet away a hero and then this would happen night after night and I realized I was, didn't even tell my sister or my mother my stories anymore where it used to be that I'd have one or two stories a week to like, share with everyone yeah. and now I was inundated with experiences and it was it was wonderful like I and I'm not criticizing it but it was way too too much for me because I like to because you couldn't share it yeah I couldn't share it and I also couldn't really roll it around in my head or at some point really feel through everything because it was so busy yeah. and then sometimes in New York I tried to live a quieter life but it really um it calls to you and there's a lot of people living under pressure there too and I felt that all the time yeah financial pressure just the pressure of people 
just the class, race, class, race, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. And in the end, I was always chasing a cheap apartment, of course, to try to live. And I would move from neighborhood. I lived in Harlem. I lived in Greenpoint, then Bed-Stuy, which is a traditionally black neighborhood. Yeah. And it was, I was aware that I was, you know, the person who I couldn't afford any more than that, but I also was paying a little bit more than the people who had always lived there. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, it, I thought I'm from, I, I have a place to live. I don't need to do this. Take up room even yeah. in New York? Yeah. Yeah. And my friends are also busy. I was so busy. It's hard to hang out with people. Right. Even new friends who I loved and I'm so excited about. We would make plans, you know, see you in two weeks. And I like seeing people every day or right, right. running into them. So you have a, a, there's a social familial impulse within you. Yeah. And when you're, yeah, I see where you're coming from. It just, you felt a little isolated. I mean, it mm-hmm. sounds like you had friends. So by the way, some of the heroes. I'm just curious yeah, sure. who you saw, what uh, what they meant to you. It sounds like they that, that resonated with you, the experience, but you had no one to share it with. Please share. Oh, I'd like to hear I about had, it. Well, I had people to share it with. It was just sort of like <laughs> full on. It was like um, being on a, a ride or something like that that you couldn't get off. Yeah. But, um, my writers that I met that I loved, um, Yoko Tawada, who's a German-Japanese writer, Jenny Erpenbeck, who's one of my biggest heroes. She's a German writer. She wrote a book called Visitation and another called The End of Days, which are my favorite contemporary books. Right. And suddenly, I, one night, I uh, I met her and then was riding a train with her. And I don't think I, the next day, that's the kind of thing I would just love to call my sister about, you know. But yeah. I had to get up and go the next day on the subway somewhere else and participate in another thing. Right. I'm, I used to work at a place where Ann Carson's always dropping mm-hmm. by. Um, Laszlo Krasnohorkai, uh, the great Hungarian writer. Mm. I've I've had many chats with him, and it, I mean, it's totally thrilling. Um all my heroes, really. So mostly, these these are primarily all literary heroes. Yeah. And you would see them, and you would you would speak with them, Chat, and hang out with them, drink with them. Did you pick their brains about their process? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to kind of play it cool when you're around someone like that, I assume. Mm-hmm. Not not dig too deep. Depends who it is. Some people are very generous. Yeah. Like Jenny Erpenbeck, um, she loved to speak generously about her work. Anne Carson's tough. You know, she's got her leather jacket on, and she'll mostly respond like in a way that's that would would tease uh, like the younger people around, and that's legitimate. She's very busy. With there, there are some writers, uh, you know, like Margaret Atwood, who say, you know, you you, you just you, the, the way to write is to, to write. You mm-hmm. know, that's it. Like the the solution seems simple to them. Yeah, I uh, agree. You agree? Yeah. It's not. There's no mystery to it. You just have to sit down and do it. I think sometimes people are wary of the work. You know what I mean? That's true, yeah. They're just like, I don't know where to begin because I think they know it's a daunting task. And so they don't know where to begin. It's like a messy room, like a room that's impossibly messy. You just don't know where to begin. I feel like that's what some writers go through or aspiring writers go to. But you didn't have that block. You just made, you you exude uh, a certain confidence, I can tell. Like you, I just love to, I love to write. Yeah. But, but I will say, even if I have... The last thing I wrote was just an article actually about hockey, but I know that feeling before I sit down or as I'm having my breakfast, I get a little nervous and excited and it it's sort of it's like jumping into the cold water or I'm ready to I know you have an idea. Yeah, and I'm going to do it and 
but yeah, I also like that. It's kind of like going into the void. I find it it's really adventurous to write. Yeah, on a lesser, much lesser level than you, I have the same. I'm, I'll be doing the dishes and I immediately have to stop because something I've been thinking about finally struck me. So I have to go write it down. Yeah. And then I think I'm just going to go write down the idea, but then I just end up writing the piece if I have a piece to write or something. Do you have that? Yeah, then that's really beautiful and extremely fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got <laughs> something like. and then you go for it. Yeah. yeah. So this trajectory of being uh, a really excellent hockey player to being <laughs> a writer of fiction and editor of, of a literary editor, I mean, that's that's not – and going to Harvard from Guelph, none, none of this makes any real sense. You are an interesting person. There's no doubt about it. But Guelph, in your, in your, in your little uh, dedication to Guelph – uh, you spoke very lovingly of some of the people here and the city itself and your family. What has this small town done to shape you into this very unique person, if I might say? I think that Guelph taught me that I could do make and make anything. And it was really the first time I realized I could make something was going to... My sister took me to a Jim Guthrie show at the Trashateria where he had his loop pedals... Oh, it was um, like a solo show? Yeah, very with, early. With the, uh, with the Nintendo, the the PlayStation? Was it that one? Nope. It oh, was it was a loop pedal? Oh, just sorry. loop pedals. And um, he, I was, I think I was 12, so. Oh, wow. It's quite, it was really early, Jim Guthrie. Okay. And he had made a tape, and I listened to it over and over and over again. And I always was interested in listening pretty much exclusively to the things my friends were making after that because yeah. I couldn't believe they'd done it and I I didn't dare to dream I would at when I was 12 but once I was about 15 16 and Noah started making rap albums Noah 23 yeah yeah and you know I'd be in what was that restaurant downtown where he used to work? Aquarius? Yeah. Cafe Aquarius. It'd be in there and everyone's playing songs and th- that they'd made. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to do that, but it was because I knew them that I thought that I could. So right. I, so I got, my mom got me a four track and I made lots of uh, records in my basement, which I then de- ha- very happily destroyed because they were so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so but you were interested I in music start- as well. Yeah. And, and making music. Yeah. yeah. That's how it started was with all these songwriters. Um, and I, I just, by seeing that and knowing they could make album after album, which they didn't, especially Noah, he's so inspiring. Yeah. By through his productivity, I just thought I can do that too. It's very simple, and there was even the expectation that you should. Um, Livestock, the rapper Ben was was my best friend when I was twelve and thirteen, yeah. and he's a very productive writer as well. Yeah, and I just they, I, especially because I was a girl, and those guys are so sweet and lovely. I think they put pressure on me to produce things, right? So I was, I thought, okay, I have to make things too. So your entry point into literary writing was songwriting. Yeah. And so you began as a songwriter? I did, but I those things that I wrote, I didn't perform them. Right. You know? But you eventually had a project called Coco Blue. Yeah, with Evan Gordon. Right. Yeah. And so you would make records. You started to make records. Mm-hmm. And I can see that uh, even by the way your eyes are shining thinking about it, this was sort of a, that was a big deal for you. Yeah. To actually make a record and produce music. That's That was always my dream, but... I did put a lot of emphasis on the lyrical writing, so it was also, and I pushed myself with the poetry mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. and so I, I think I taught myself how to write in, in different forms that way. Because they're like, my songs are generally have a certain structure, and so I was teaching myself poetry too, but 
through music, which I knew I could do because all my friends were doing it. When you say your songs had a certain structure, do you mean as sort of the opposite of a conventional verse, chorus, verse, bridge musical structure? No, or they often had that, but I would try to make poetic developments, you know, verse to verse, and hmm. as all song like songwriters who I admire do. Right. But I was sort of I was giving myself a bit of an education in writing through doing that and even picking apart my friends' songs and other songs that I love and see how they're built and You mentioned Noah twenty three, you mentioned livestock, you also mentioned Jim. When I heard the Coco Blue record, it didn't it uh, it seemed to lean more towards Jim. Did you get into rapping? Were you ever a rapper? I rapped a little bit. You did? Yeah. I, I couldn't help it because Ben um livestock was my my best friend when I was a young teenager. Did you have an MC moniker? Coco Bonaparte. Coco Bonaparte, that's right. That's me. I totally <laughs> blanked on that. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so you would rap. What was that like? Because that is not only poetic writing, that's a, that's a performance thing. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a skill set you have to develop. How was that? It was good. It felt really good. I, I love practicing with my friends and the DJs who are always my favorite and dancing. I mean, that's that's a whole, that's a life. And yeah. I just glanced at it. I couldn't help it because those are my friends, but I, um, it's extremely fun and it feels really good. What's with the Coco? Oh, well, my goddaughter, Coco Summer Rainbow is her name. Her and name is Coco Summer Rainbow? That, yeah. Wow. And uh, there's a... So she, when she was born, people started calling her Rainbow, and I was like, Coco's such a cool name, K-O-K-O. Yeah, yeah. And Coco, it's, she's a friend from up north in Tomogamy. Okay. Her parents. And Coco Miss is, means grandmother in Anishinaabe. I oh, think. And okay. So, but this child I love. And my other um, friend, now he's 18 and he's six foot three, but my godson, her older brother is Sam Blue Sky. Oh, so okay. it's like Coco Blue is a mix of their their names, which oh, is my, okay. my band with Evan. That's your band. Does that yeah. band still exist? I think it might. Yeah. Yeah. You might do it again. Yeah. Okay. I love that band so much. You released one record, right? Mm-hmm. Is it, was it an EP? Or no, it was no, a it was full a length record. Long, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a CD. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was, this shot blue, Coco Blue, what's going on with the blue? Yeah, it's a, well. Blue is the color of poetry. Is that right? Yeah. How Tip so? It, that's a sim- like it's a long-standing symbol. So oh. I I play out. It's one of my favorite poets, Jory Graham, who's my teacher too. She says in one poem, she says, um, you know, there's in the blue light, I'll take you there. So it's sort of like the light. You should, poetry maybe shines blue light on things which show them slightly differently hmm. and maybe more clearly. Um, oh, I didn't know this. Just this, I think it's a very old symbol. We could look it up in the book of symbols, but yeah. Uh, you're into symbols? Is, are, is, yeah. What about like astrology? Are you into astrology? Uh, a little bit. Noah is, I think, very into astrology. Yeah, no, very I, much. I Sometimes I'm, I'm baffled at how much uh, he knows about it, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, you, he put, seems to put a lot of stock into that stuff. Are you... Yeah, I believe in all of that stuff. You do? Yeah. Do you think, do you, do you think things happen... For some reason, per se, like, do you are you someone who thinks fate plays a hand in everything, that kind of thing? Hmm. Sometimes, but mostly, I just am in the mo- like trying to be in the moment. All I think like fate implies an arc or a future that you're you might you know jam into. But right. I'm just 
focused on the present as sort of like a humming present, which I think it that's all I think there really is okay. that I know anyway. There's a moment, I, I mean, we, I want to talk about Shot Blue as much as we can without uh, ruining the book for anyone who's about to read it because it's a very compelling book. And I believe, if I recall correctly, this this phrase, Shot Blue, is first invoked uh, in a passage about this character, Marie, right? Yeah, that's right. And what is that? What, can you describe that passage? What does Shot Blue in, mean exactly? It's um, Marie is a young girl who spends most of her time either with her mother with whom she feels alone or alone and she's sitting writing in her diary which she does very sparsely mm-hmm. and she hears a gunshot down the bay she's on an island on a, on a deep lake yeah and in, in the north in the north yeah. yeah and this is something that i've heard dozens of times out in my boat or in the canoe just you're a gunshot and you think you're alone and also there are no other boats around and I, and you realize there are you know, uh, men or women on land somewhere. Uh-huh. But for her, it's very abstract. So she hears the shot and she's been struggling to um, to describe the the sky and she's looking, it's a blue sky and she hears the shot right. and she just thinks that this is the perfect language to describe it now, shot blue. That's what it is. Okay. And and it, I think it's because the the gunshot too sort of like blows open the language and the the sky for her. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's an interest. That's a, that I appreciate your. I mean, obviously, you would have <laughs> greater insight on this. That I was trying to come up with my own interpretation of it because I believe one of the other characters, Tristan, does he not then adopt the moniker Shot Blue? Does he become? Tristan shot blue or something. I read no, that somewhere. But I li- no, but I like that. <laughs> I, keep, I keep reading. I, I, yeah. I read a review of it and it mentioned that, and mm-hmm. I and I was like, I don't remember that happening. No, um, that doesn't happen. But the kind of that feeling of of being alone and a young person who's having epiphanies yeah. is something that Marie and Tristan share. Marie loves Tristan. Yeah, Tristan does not know this. No, or acknowledge it. No, no. not at all. Okay. This book is, it's a, when I read it, I, I enter a weird dreamlike state. I can't figure out when this book is happening or exactly where it's happening. Yeah, I love that. That's really intentional. That's intentional yeah. for you. It's of no time and place. Although mm-hmm. I will say, in my mind, I, I picture some post-apocalyptic time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Because the characters seem to be in... uh, They are at the mercy of nature and the elements a lot of the time. Yeah. 
what is going on in this book? What inspired <laughs> this book exactly? I really love. I really love what you're saying. Well, I think that that I feel. Um, oh yeah, I should say too. It's been criticized that the idea that there can be like some confusion in the narrative perspective yeah. in the book. Yeah. But that's all very much. I wanted it to be something where the characters and how I feel is that when you spend time with someone, your consciousness is you know they overlap and you start to you feel things together and very much apart at the same time. Yeah. And so there's a bit of a swish in the and a blur in a lot of the moments where you don't know if the feeling is being shared or who it belongs to. Yeah. And that it's like, blurry. I love that. That's exactly what I was trying to do because that's how I've felt my whole life in my close friendships. You've hmm you felt like what because you're like you, we have a lot to do with each other more than we you're in you're a gang person though yeah. you're a person that that thrives in sort of collective environments that's true and what you're i think what you're saying is that when you're in those environments you feel like the unit is one yeah one entity yeah you're not separate people you're like voltron you're yeah. coming together and you're one giant thing did you get the Voltron reference? No. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a cartoon. It became it was a cartoon when I was a kid, and no one seems to get this reference mm-hmm. anymore past uh, below twenty five or something. But anyway, yeah, it's stupid. It was I think it was maybe a, it might have been a Japanese toy that they turned into a cartoon. But basically, the the arms and the legs and the head or whatever were all uh, their own robots. But when they had to deal with something, mm-hmm. you know, like if they wanted to play net. They would come together and form a giant robot. Not not they'd be the individuals, but they'd form a collective. Yeah. On some level, I think as a kid, I probably thought that's teamwork. I yeah. bet they were kind of secretly <laughs> teaching you how teamwork worked. You yeah. know, you have to work together. But in any case, uh, enough about Voltron. <laughs> I don't know where what, what we were talking about. Oh, this notion of uh, of space and time blurring together for a shared experience. Yeah. And you think people were criticizing this because they like definitive characterizations and definitive characters frankly but people maybe aren't ready for this in terms of a book is that what well I think that a lot of people I when I say that that's just a couple um critics who I think are are over intellectualizing it maybe um because all the readers I've talked to people really like like I've had people respond really positively to that Hmm. but I should say that while I'm interested in that blurring together and the shared experience, I also, the book is very much about where that kind of goes wrong, where you thought you were sharing something with someone. And like the flip side of it is that actually sometimes you do something together, but you have very different experiences right. of it and um, maybe not in the most friendly way. And it can you can feel very isolated when you're with somebody too. Mm. So I was I the book is very much about like how close people are, where they overlap, how much they love each other and blend together but also struggle are very much alone at the same time. So all these dynamics that are shifting. There's no moral to the story. It's about like these these shifting daily dynamics. Well, but that shifting that shifts those shifts and that uncertainty I think are a hallmark of contemporary postmodern fiction and pop culture there's this sense that there are no defined happy endings anymore more and more you yeah. i know one of the this might seem maybe like a trite example but when i think of how much of an uproar something like the the finale of the sopranos caused and what a chain reaction that i saw in film and movies we're like or like game of thrones i'm using tv shows and movies of mm-hmm. course because 
they come to me ready. I don't know why. They're yeah. vivid. But this notion of like every character you love goes dies or doesn't have a uh, a happy ending. And we are more and more, I think, as the earth feels uncertain, I feel like writers are picking up on that notion of like it's okay to confront uncertainty. It's actually healthy for us to engage with this notion that things are not always going to work out the way you think they are. Right. That that intuition is maybe a false flag, even <laughs> like that 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 kind of intuitive sense. Like I'm going to go into a a movie theater or I'm going to read a book, and at the end I'm going to feel good. Yeah. And there's some aspect of that in this book of of characters sort of leaving, characters that you've just become engaged with suddenly disappearing. Yeah. That's something you're tapping into, I think, this notion of... Yeah, I was really interested in that when I was writing it. Now, it's funny because I have different personal interests. Hmm. But when I was writing it, uh, I was really personally uh, going through a lot and wondering about, like, the loss of friends um, for whatever reason and people in your life, family members who pass away. Yeah. And just what it's like to... uh, you know, meet to be with people and then to have there be some sort of barrier where you no longer can see them anymore. Yeah. And, and yeah, so p- people being cut off from each other um, through discord or death or, and yeah, or the just relationships ending. Yeah. And I, I was, I was really tender about it in my own life. I was worried about it and I love my friends and family yeah. so much. And it was something I was just turning over a lot and, now I have different preoccupations, but at the time I was really thinking and feeling a lot about that. Well, there's also uh, an aspect in your book about use usage uh, of people using one another for their own ends, using the land for their own ends. Yeah. What were you trying to say there? Yeah. Well, with the land, and I, I mean, it's an old, st- it's the worst story, Canada's worst story. And yeah. in this case, it's just a, a family who has bought an island, which of course never belonged to them in the first place. Right. But that through poverty, they can't hold on to it. And it's, this is Tristan's island, yeah. which his mother had. And it was his grandfather's at one point. Treble Island? No, that's a different. Oh, that's that's, the, that's where they go. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm messing up your. No, no, no. I'm just trying to follow along. Mm-hmm. But uh, where? So wait, Treble Island is the island. The it's the big main. The island. The big island, but the yeah. island that they were on. It's a small one. But it does does it have a name? No. Okay. Good. Sorry. Yeah. This is why. <laughs> this is where it happens, though. Like yeah. when you li- when you're dealing with a nebulous universe, like mm-hmm. the one you've created, uh, where like I said, I don't know where things. I know that one place is called Treble Island. So I jumped in stupidly. You. You continue. Okay. You were speaking so well and I eloquently, and I'm no, just an okay. oaf trying to stay engaged here. Go ahead. What was I talking about? See, I don't know. <laughs> I screwed it all up. Moving on. No, yeah, no. You were talking about land and Canada's oh, uh, right. uh, history of uh, land and and how Tristan uh, and his mother thought they owned an island, but right. they really didn't. They really didn't. Yeah. And then it's taken over by Americans who you know, strip the trees and build up a a huge fortress there for their own leisure. Yeah, 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 recreational lodge kind of thing. And it destroys all all the aspects of the island that he loves, although he can still he's still trying to always pull them out. And so he stays up very late once all the lights are out because that's how it always used to be right. there. It was very dark and stuff like that. So, But you can see where I know you were you were trying to strike back at critics who um, 
maybe don't or maybe are too fixated on this notion of uh, solid ground or mm -hmm. grounding in something. But you can see where people would be like, like I say, I thought something had happened to the planet and that a bunch of people uh, were just dealing with what they had. Yeah. Uh, you know, they in lieu of creature comforts like a mirror, you're knocking a mirror aside, like a side view mirror off a car and you're carrying this jagged shard of glass with yeah. you because you just want to look at yourself every once in a while or whatever. There is a lot of allegory in the book, I yeah. think, and very intentionally. And there's there are also sort of puzzles. And I used to, some of my favorite literature is like absurdist modern literature. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that is puzzles or philosophical conundrums. And those things, they just came out because I wrote it, the book much like a meditation, but there is an allegory and I could see it, it, it could be post-apocalyptic. I mean, for Rachel, it is because she's done with society and that's where the book starts. Yeah. And that she's leaving society. Right. And she could be, and she walks away from it and, and that's in it. It's, it could sort of like everything's burning behind her. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have this company that mm -hmm. builds a wreck lodge. Yeah. And it's seemingly in the midst of all this chaos uh, where people are just struggling to survive. Because they have money. They're a different class. You know, they, so it's they, an allegory about class? That, there, is, there is that. Yeah. Because it's, it, it happens in a lot of beautiful places where people live year-round and then others come to tourists there for the summertime. Yeah. And, and there's a whole thing with Americans up in the north in northern Canada, too, where they come and they, you know, spread Yeah, out. like cottages, cabins. Yeah. yeah, they come up here. I hear about this. And so do, so do people just from southern, know, southern Ontario. Ontario. Yeah. yeah, they head up for a respite from the city. Right, but people, some people live there and... Yeah. Yeah. So you... Okay. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Your father, Nick, has been on the show, Nicholas Reddick, and uh, he's also a writer. Um, of the works of his that I've read... Uh, they strike a, a much different tone in some ways than yours. What kind of insights or inspiration does he provide you as a writer? Well, I could tell this story. He he is a great inspiration to me as a prose stylist and a storyteller, but we're very, very different yeah. writers. Um, he, early on, I didn't anticipate this question, but it's important because I love my dad so much and I admire him. Has no him, one asked so. you about your father? <laughs> no. I feel like your father doesn't, he gets short shrift in the literary world here. I mean, he's yes, been nominated for some awards, yeah, some yeah. big awards, yeah. but I, I find it difficult when I talk about your dad's, and I mean, he's had, he, he had, what, does he have an agent and stuff? Yeah, he's a great writer. He's a great he's writer had, yeah. and he's got a publisher, like big publishers, not small publishers, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he's got both. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I, I mean, it's a tough it's a tough gig. Yeah, but being he's a writer. he's been published lately in Brick Magazine a couple of times, which yeah. is my favorite Canadian yeah. magazine. And great journal. Yeah, he was up for the EFG Short Story Award in England, which is huge. Yeah, and he writes these really magical, intricate prose pieces. Yeah, they're I, wonderful. Yeah, a wonderful writer. Yeah, and also in Guelph, and he came to it really late in life. Like he's a doctor. Yeah, and he came to writing kind of late in life. He told me. Yeah, that's right. We. We started this thing when I was at Harvard oh, and very, right. yes. very behind. <laughs> I remember you would exchange. Is, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, continue. Uh, I So many of my friends, I remember I had a class called expository writing, which I had actually tested out of where I needed even remedial writing lessons at Harvard. Really? Yeah, but I went to them and I said, 
how much I loved writing and that I wanted to be in this one poetry sort of study class. And they uh-huh. they, they let me in. And the first day we were supposed to go put our essays into a folder in the library. And I, I opened up the folder and I read a couple of my classmates' pieces, which were beautiful. I actually still remember their structures. And mm-hmm. I realized that these people were writing at age 18 very beautifully. And I just started, I basically had a panic attack because I couldn't write like that at all. Mm-hmm. And I told, I called my parents and I was like crying on the phone being like, I, I want to write. I always, you know, I was writing my songs and things like this. And I conceived of myself like I had to write, but I realized that I didn't have the skills. And so part of this, my sister was at college at Queens mm-hmm. and my dad took it upon himself to start to teach us how to use punctuation in the most creative and anomalous ways possible. Okay. So he didn't just teach me commas. He wasn't like, oh, you don't know how to use commas. Like, this is how they work in these plain ways. He started right at the top, and he wasn't a writer yet. But he would pull out Zabald sentences or Virginia Woolf and stuff like that and send them to us and say, look at how this is how you do it. Yeah. And then he started writing his own to illustrate points where he could, didn't find the the sentence in another book. Right. And he wrote such fucking beautiful sentences that my sister and I said, these are poems, like what, yeah. what you're doing are poems. And so he was teaching us how to write and at the same time just started writing poetry for us. Right. And, and were you not exchanging poetry? Yeah, yeah. well, somewhat. We would, it would start, he would send us something and then we would... This is very dorky, but it was also fun and natural. I think it's gorgeous and beautiful yeah. that you have this familial uh, bond over writing. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, It was very natural. And I think at this point, maybe I was 20, 20 years old and my sister was yeah far away. And it was a way for us all to talk to each other, yeah, too. Right. So he would send a sentence and then we would respond and what we loved about it and that we didn't think this worked and the other and this and that and the other thing. So that we called that the sentence of the week club. And, right. that, and that was the beginning of now of many books. <laughs> you right. <know? laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just got him going. Yeah. That's it's an amazing story mm-hmm. in itself. And, and your family is uh, is it's almost uh, you, you guys could be like the subject of like a Wes Anderson movie at this point. <laughs> There's a lot going on. The goaltending Harvard yeah. graduate and the writers mm-hmm. and the. What is your sister? Is your sister Nora you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does she do? She works. She writes poetry too. Right. And she works at Broadview Press, which is in town. Yeah. And my wife used to work there. Oh, really? Well, Wonderful. they got kind of the company got kind of split up, and so she went with the. Anyway, it's not that's not that interesting yeah. story, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's so that's an academic book publisher. That's right. Right. So she's in books as well. She is. Yeah. Okay. All and right. She's a wonderful writer, and we're all we all have totally different styles, which I like. And your mom's a, a visual artist. She's a painter. Painter. Yeah. My mom's really the leader of the family and our and the best artist in the family too. <laughs> she she's Cheryl real Cheryl shit. Ruddick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We should point out Cheryl. I should have Cheryl on the show. Oh yeah. She's always very sweet and kind to me. Anytime I see her. Yeah, and yeah. she's a. She, you should visit her studio. Okay. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Yeah, I mean, let's make that happen. Mm-hmm, I want cool. all the Ruddicks on the show. That's really nice. I think you. it would be fun <laughs> to have all of them on. Mm-hmm. So we've given people at least a, a cursory sense of Shot Blue in that. It's uh, it's a lot to process. I hope you're not. If you object to anything I'm about to say or I'm saying, you I tell do. Me. I do object to that, and that I think it's mostly like a novel about these relationships, and it starts out with a mother and son, and yes. it's very emotional. And a lot of people have written to me and been like, "I read it in two two nights. I couldn't put it down." And I think they follow 
the emotional strain of it, of what the characters are going through, and they want to follow their sort of unusual decisions and turns. Mm-hmm. And then other people are puzzling over my poetry and my my sort of like modern approach of mm. creating, it, making it really mysterious on purpose. Right. And other people are getting really tied up into that. So I almost think they're, they're it appears to me, I have no idea though, really. But I mean, you're responding to people talking to you, but there's also been like the New York Times published a review, the Toronto Star published a review. You've had some reviews. Yeah, yeah. And that's got a that's a weird thing. I've never. I guess I've been reviewed. It's odd, right? You put all your work and your your heart into thing, and you think yeah. you know what it is, and then someone objective looks at it and they say, meh, or whatever, yeah. or this is great. And you're like, oh, they saw something great about it or not great about it that mm-hmm. I didn't even contemplate, right? I think all the reviews have been really good, actually. The only thing that made me think like, ah, was the Toronto Star headline, which yeah. as a writer and an, an editor, I think the editor tacked that up. They put this like shitty headline on what I think was a super Clickbait. respectful yeah. and quite thoughtful review for the star especially like someone had really tangled with the book and and i loved the review but i saw the title of it and i thought oh my god like thanks well the the (laughs) title i thought you put that up i don't know if that's clickbait i was like who would want to click on that but other than that i've had i've actually had dozens and dozens of reviews that if they have criticisms, they're often about things that I was experimenting with, which I find super exciting. The the Toronto Star headline was something to the effect of uh, the prose or the plot was sacrificed for the sake of poetry or, yeah. pro- or prose. In fact, actually, it was like you, they seemed to suggest you were the wordplay was of paramount importance to you as opposed to the, the plot, plot development. Yeah. And uh, that's not I see where you're where you're it, I I mean th- there's a point as you're reading it where you don't like I say you I think you'd have to admit it's a little bit of a shaky ground like it's just sort of as you say <laughs> it's not a conventionally written book yeah and it's not it doesn't develop thank god that's all I want to do right. that's right yeah. that's the whole point the, well who yeah. wants conventional right mm-hmm. yeah but I think you could probably I understand your objection to it uh, I'm not saying I agree with it but I do think that I find myself, when I'm reading the book, I find myself sort of grappling with where I'm at all yeah, the time, yeah. which is fine. It's a good feeling. It's a little, I'm a nighttime reader. I tend to read uh, before bed. Mm-hmm. So this book keeps me up. Yeah. It has kept me up, I should say. It's kept me up at night, and I can't stop reading it. And I'm also scared to fall asleep because <laughs> I'm like, is this the it world that, that could be? Is this the yeah. world that is? You know, it's it's because it seems to be temporarily even all over the place mm-hmm. um, anyway I love it it's great and, and I, I, I I don't need any reassurance but I because would because you're so confident no because I <laughs> it's like a work of love so that just yeah. exists like that you know yeah but um yeah it really is like it has its own life apart from me and I'm very happy with it and I think that I will only probably write something more experimental, you know. Next. Yeah, and I I really think that if you don't get criticized, that's like terror. That would be terrifying. Because it's nice to be divisive, or it's nice to be. Well, if you're not, it's just like so. It's like you're you're um pitching soft, you know. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Which I was not taught to do in Guelph. My God, <laughs> if you don't make something new, like you don't have a place at the at the table here. Uh, your friends thought you were too good to go to Harvard, basically. 
on some <laughs> level. You're you're from Guelph. They're, yeah, you can't go there. You can't go to Harvard, mm-hmm. but you went. They're still disappointed in me, but I went and I survived, I think, yeah. They're disappointed in you? Do you think they were worried that you were going to forget them because that's the big leagues? I think they didn't want me to become conventional in any You way. haven't? Not at all. That's cool. There's nothing conventional. I I would say you are among the most unconventional guests I've ever had on the show. <laughs> the more we got into it, yeah, the nice. you know, because I have Guelph people on all the time and no one has had a story like yours. So I uh I, I want to know what you mentioned that if you make something else it's going to be more experimental. Are you working on something? Yeah, I my next book, but it's it's a bit secret even to myself. You, you're keeping secrets from yourself now, Jesse? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's odd. That's weird. Well, I like when I write, I don't want it to be too mapped out, and I want it to be a meditation where I'm discovering things as yeah, I go sure, along. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. You have a rough... When you began Shot Blue, did you have... Uh, did you? And I don't want to be a person that asks you necessarily about your process, but did you have the characters in mind uh, before the scenarios? <laughs> no. I think my... Un- I realized only after I finished that my unconscious did, that there, yeah. there are certain people that these characters were people that I loved aspects of them um and that were really important to me archetypically like the the single mother with the young son and just people in my life who I've been who I want to understand and through writing I can understand although they don't relate to anyone that I know specifically it's like problems or people who I've known or wondered about yeah and so that's where they came from. Okay. But with the next one, I will create some structure, but then I also want to write my way like into the yeah, yeah, yeah. into its like light and darkness, whatever it is. Is I don't. there a name for this process? It's not like uh uh what is it called? It's not unconscious writing. It's what is it? automatic writing. Automatic writing. writing. That's what it is. Yeah. And yeah. some I think I do that partly. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, it's very fun to just do pure automatic writing and I used to do books of it, just fill yeah. books with it. But um, with this, I kind of circle around it. I, it's pretty stream of consciousness, but then I circle back around. So that's not pure automatic. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. And you're going to move to Montreal? Yeah. Why? Because my partner and I, um, we were working these jobs in New York and we needed an escape plan. Uh-huh. So we applied to Concordia. We both got it. So we're going as a family. To go to school? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. for more school. Well... Harvard George wasn't good enough st- for you. You need to go to Concordia too. <laughs> I need to get if I would like to teach to make some money. Oh, I see. Which because I'd like to have a family that I could support. Um, when it's just me, I like to be scrappy and to make piecework and yeah. everything like that. But now I'm settling down. So to support my family, I would like to get my PhD. <laughs> what do you have so, right now? A master's. A master's. You have a ma- yeah. Did you get the master's at Harvard? Toronto. Oh, so you went to Harvard for your undergrad. Yeah. U of T for. Yeah. Master in English? English. English. Yeah. Okay. I have a master's in English. Wonderful. I have accomplished nothing. <laughs> nothing. You are amazing. I, I anyway, it's you, I to, you've accomplished nah, Oh my god. Nothing. I don't want to make this about me now. We're we're wrapping up. It's fine. I'll be fine. You, but you <laughs> you're an inspiring person, Jesse. Uh-huh. I appreciate you being on the show. That's nice. Is there a why don't we go out on a Coco Blue song? Oh, okay. Is that a thing we could do? Or do you feel... Were you at the... Ma- did you see the match? Yeah, they did a song of yours. Yeah, that was crazy. It was amazing. Did you know they were going to do that? No. I, I was trying that's to... That's typical. That's typical I was trying Jordy to, and Evan. Yeah, that was very sweet. The Magic mm-hmm. played this beautiful afternoon show at Kazoo Fest, and then it was at your book launch yeah. after, after you'd read. 
and took some questions from the audience. And then, uh, yeah, they played one of your songs, and uh, it was lovely. And I was, I actually was so distracted by you. I was trying to gauge your reaction. I, I was, was crying more, very. I hard. know. I was more interested in, and I was. I only. I to be honest, I wasn't fixated on look at the crying person. But I was just like, oh, I'm, she must be. That to me was more interesting almost than what was happening on stage. Yeah. That, that you, I thought you had been surprised by this thing. Anyway, yeah, did you want to go to, do you want to go to that song? Or uh, is there something else? We could just go to more of a rock song. That song's very sad. Okay. Um, and I, I cried enough about it this weekend oh, okay. <laughs> when, they, when they played it. Right, and, okay. Um, you could play Salt Water. Sure. That's a water song. Why? It's kind of a nice rock song. Okay, but you just want to rock. You want to go out on a rock. Yeah, rock out. Okay. <laughs> All right. This is Saltwater from Coco Blue. What's the name of the record? Thank you, Vish. Uh, Coco Blue crosses and planks. Crosses and planks, and is it available in a band camp or something? Yeah, it's free because I put it after a while. I just put it up for free, so okay. you can download it. You can download the record. Yeah. And okay, crosses and planks and Coco Blue on Bandcamp, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, this is Saltwater Coco. See, now you got me calling you Coco. That's what a lot of people call me. Yeah, I've never called you Coco. Days of old. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. Best of luck with everything. Thank you, Vish. Yeah, very much.
From the 2013 release, Crosses and Planks, that was Coco Blue, a.k.a. Jesse Ruddock, with a song called Saltwater. Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. I can't recall having a guest on the show who surprised me so much with everything they said. Just everything Jesse said was somewhat astonishing to me, and I enjoy it. It's just like her book. It's kind of like Shot Blue. Every page I read, slightly surprised by what I'm encountering. She's a magical person, so... And if you don't know her, she's she's one to watch, I would say. Jesse Reddick, super talented person. Thank you for being on the show. You can you just go find out more about Jesse Reddick and her new book, Shot Blue. This is the 316th episode of the Creative Control with Vishkana podcast. And uh, it's available on all the podcast platforms now. iTunes, Audioboom, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast. Pretty much everything. You can learn more about the show at vishkana.com. Oh, it's on YouTube, too. I always forget to say that. It's on YouTube. I've been putting the episodes on YouTube. Not very many people are noticing this, but that's fine. I'm just putting them out there, and maybe someday someone will stumble upon these internet things we do and be like, What is this? Anyway, it's everywhere. Learn more about the show at vishkana.com. Also go to patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep the podcast going. Or just listen to the show for free on CFRU, which uh, you can do anywhere in the world at CFRU.ca or on uh, you know Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time. That's when the show uh, goes on the air and you can uh, tune in, as I say, CFRU.ca or CFRU 93.3 FM if you're in the area. Please do that. This show would not be possible without our sponsors. Pizza Trocadero, amazing pizza in Guelph, 519-829-2444. For pickup or delivery, or visit trocaderoguelph.ca to, to learn more. The bookshelf, a cultural hub that I'm sure Jesse uh, partook of when she was uh, in this town. It's a cultural hub, it's a bookstore, it's a music venue, it's a bar, it's a movie theater. Located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. And for the finest coffee anywhere in the world, really, Try Planet Bean Freshly Roasted Fair Trade Certified Organic Coffee. Let me just say I've not been all over the world. That's fair to say, but I like this coffee. Of the coffee I've had in the world, this is my favorite coffee. So go to planetbeancoffee.com to figure out if you can order some of this amazing, amazing coffee. Uh, I don't know if you heard. Probably you've heard by now if you follow the show or follow the Facebook or the Twitter. Uh, there is a TV show version of of Long Night with Vishkana. We recorded six episodes. They are now available and streaming uh, courtesy of the people at 5TV. Uh, if you're a Bell Media subscriber, uh, you can access the show on your app or on your TV. And uh, it's on uh, on your TV. It's on channel 1 uh, on 5TV1 or on channel 1217 on 5 and uh, it's available in those recommended folders and the 4K content folders. It's there. It's a little scrappy. We worked really hard, but it's scrappy. I like it. I'm happy with it. Uh, I've never done anything like this before. We're all very happy, and there's great, great guests uh, on the show. So, uh, yeah, there you go. I hope you will check out the show if you can, and if you can't access it, uh, if you don't have a bell thing right now, uh, ideally, the show will be uh, available on YouTube and whatnot in, in the near future. So look out for that long night with Vishkan. All right, that's it for me. I will talk to you very, very, very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.